Good morning, everyone. It's well worth leaving that uh, passage open that Vanda read for us, and I think there's an outline uh, inside your bundles of paper as well. Uh, last night I was picking up one of my daughters from a, a birthday party she'd attended, driving back along the Pacific Highway and saw an illuminated sign outside a church, and uh, it, it said this, uh, Jesus had great ideas. Jesus had great ideas. And having had my uh, head and heart in this passage all week, I'm thankful that Jesus brought far more than great ideas, that he is our saviour, and that he brings a way back from failure. Uh, this passage is a wonderful passage, and I'm gonna pray that God helps us to hear him well uh, this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are uh, our saviour. We thank you that by your son's death and resurrection, you have brought not just ideas and words and uh, philosophy, but you have brought um, a way back from even the deepest and uh, most tragic of failures. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's passage does contain, I think, uh, words of great comfort uh, for those who have failed. And I I do want to say, if that's not you, if you are not a failure, uh, then today's passage may not make much sense to you. Uh, But for those of us who know failure at different points in our lives, uh, I think these words before us are precious. Uh, Last week, you may remember, we we were in the Garden of Gethsemane and we saw there the the DNA of the true church that our God is building uh, on Jesus Christ. Remember, it had two parts. It had our weakness, uh, which was, well, in the context of that passage, pridefully not listening to God and instead trusting ourselves. And then we saw his strength, Jesus' strength, humbly heeding his Father and carrying us all. And what we have today in this next section of Mark's Gospel that we're looking at is we see the difference that that DNA actually makes it at a personal level. We'll see that because of Jesus, our failure need not not be final. And so as we begin, let, let me tell you about a famous failure. His name is Thomas Cramner. He's an important figure in the Anglican Church. He's responsible for the Anglican Prayer Book. Much of the words that we will say together, even this morning, uh, he he is partly responsible for. He was a genius, uh, but for a period of his life, he was also, as a result of great pressure, a coward. Uh, He was imprisoned by the daughter of Henry VIII, uh, who who essentially gave the church back to the Pope and uh, under intense persecution, uh, uh, burnt thousands of ordinary people who were trying to hold to their faith. Thomas Cranmer, in the midst of that, was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was put into prison and he was threatened with torture and death to recant his faith in the Lord Jesus, that Jesus had done enough, uh, that what he had done was sufficient uh, for salvation. And eventually, under intense pressure, he caved and recanted of his faith. Uh, then, uh, after a period of time, uh, he recanted of his recantation, and uh, as a result was himself sentenced to death. And just before his death, he wrote this, I have sinned in that I signed with my hand what I did not believe with my heart. Therefore, when the flames are lit, this hand will be the first to burn. Uh, And what had happened was in a moment of weakness, he had caved into this pressure and said he no longer believed what he actually did believe. And then as he turned around again uh, and was finally sentenced to death, those who were eyewitnesses said that is exactly what happened. As the fires began to lick up around his body, he shoved his right hand into the fire first, 
so ashamed was he that he had been a coward at that moment when he was to lead God's people. How do you come back from failure? How do you come back from caving in to pressure when it comes to being a follower of the Lord Jesus? And I ask that question uh, with, I think, confidence that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, at some level or another, you will know, getting to that point where, where we have uh, said things or perhaps failed to say things or done things or, or failed to do them, that as a genuine Christian, Christian leave us ashamed. And if you've ever felt that, here are words in this passage for failures. And if you can see there on the outline, we're going to look at four things. We're going to see firstly this. Have a look at, again, back in uh, verse 27 of our passage, uh, the fall, the failure of the Apostle Peter foreshadowed. Do you remember if Jesus had foreshadowed his failure? The, the Apostle Peter, who's this massive presence in the Gospels, strong and loud and confident, seemingly uh, irrepressible. Uh, but verse 27, Jesus says to him, you will all fall away. Peter replies, not, not me, Jesus. I go to death for you. You can count on me. Jesus says, no, Peter, you will deny me. Three times you'll deny me, in fact, in one night. Peter says, no, Lord, you're thinking of the others. Uh, I'm made of stronger stuff than that. I, I will never deny you. Now, last week we saw writ large the, the folly of our self-belief at moments like this. And in the verses that follow, the, the, the fall that was foreshadowed is now fulfilled. And that was the passage that Vanda read for us from verse 66. Just before it, we have the first sort of part of the fall. Well, in the garden, we have this violent and clumsy scene as, as Jesus is arrested. And one of his disciples, and we learn from some of the other gospel accounts that it's Peter, swings a sword in defense of Jesus attempting to prevent the arrest, still thinking that Jesus' kingdom is going to come about by power plays and strong men. But that fails. And we're told in verse 50, the rest flee. Still Peter follows. He follows Jesus, but now at a distance, not wanting to get too close. And they reach the high priest's house, and Jesus is put on trial before the religious elite, and we'll see that next week. And while he's on trial inside, Peter is outside on trial before we're told here a servant girl. It's worth reading that part of Mark again. Have a look at verse 66. While Peter was in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You are also uh, with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And, and he went into the entrance, went out into the entrance. And when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around them, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. Uh, he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed the second time and Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him that before the cock crows twice you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. As Jesus stands strong before the high priest declaring his coming kingdom inside, Peter outside warming his hands by this fire hides his faith 
I mean, it's the equivalent of the, the coffee break at work or, or perhaps a meal with friends. Uh, Peter declares, I do not know this man you're talking about. And it, it is easy to look at Peter here and be ready, if you like, to cast the first stone as he fails. But, but actually, none of us can. At least he made it to the courtyard uh, more than anyone else in this scene. And like Cramner, like Peter, we too can be full of bluster, full of songs, pledging our faithfulness, only to have a collapse on the first moment on Monday morning as, as perhaps a colleague or a friend asks us about our weekend and Jesus doesn't even rate a mention. Never knew the guy. Or we miss the moment with a friend to, to speak for Jesus and we make up some excuse about, well, I don't want to damage the relationship. We can be just like Peter. We too can hide our faith. Uh, I remember years ago leading um, youth group uh, when I grew up in St Ives and I, I used to have to walk to youth group from, from home across the village green and through the shops uh, at St Ives. And it took me a while to realise what I was doing, but subconsciously I would have my Bible with me ready for Bible study with the youth group and I would have a jumper covering the Bible just so that no one knew what I was doing, like I was some spy uh, in uh, enemy territory hiding the fact that I was a Christian and that I was heading to church. Uh, we deny Jesus all too easily. And sometimes we don't even know, uh, we don't even have to do it publicly. We, we speak of our trust in him, we declare it in the words of a creed and, and, and we, we say we trust his ways and then we go back to our real security, uh, be it our career or our wealth or our plans or whatever that may be. And our denial of Jesus, whatever form it takes, always leads to the moment we see here with Peter of deep regret. I mean, picture Peter there in verse 72, if you see it there. It's such a tragic scene. And I reckon anyone who knows the feeling of failure in life knows something of the sadness that Peter feels in this moment. And here's my question. Where do you go when you reach that point in life, when you have failed? I mean, in my own experience of, of failing and also my experience as a, as a pastor, I've seen a, a number of common pathways sort of forward from failure. And here they are. Here's the first of them. And it's the most common. Denial. Uh, the most foolish, but the most common path. We just deny the failure. If we don't do that, we, we try this distraction. We, we blame others or we blame the circumstances or we just get busy with other things, so hoping no one will notice. It reminds me of one of my children who will remain nameless that when she was much younger, oops, I've given part of it away. Well, there's three girls, so it doesn't narrow it down too much. Uh, she would, uh, when she was in trouble with either uh, Liz or I, she would start running around in the lounge room and she'd say, you can't tell me, I'm running. And so that's what we do with failure. If we're busy enough, we can perhaps move on. And if we don't try that, we try desertion. We run away from the failure. We run away from the one that we feel we have disappointed, which means in this case for Peter, running away from God. I remember years ago, uh, working in a church in the UK, uh, we, we'd interview people to be ministry trainees each January, and they were to start in September, and we interviewed one particular guy in January, and he, he was going to be a, a fantastic trainee, looking forward to working with him later that year and I remember calling him or trying to call him in July and he just wouldn't answer and uh, in, in the intervening months between uh, he'd gone through a series of pretty monumental failures in his life and the way he was going to deal with that was just to keep running. It's not a surprise that we respond this way. I mean consider again what we saw last week, consider our culture's obsession with success and self-belief. In our culture if you fail 
publicly, you are rejected. This is why I love the gospel so much. And this is why if, if uh, you've never responded properly to the news about Jesus, you, you, you need to hear this. Because the gospel's answer to our failure is incredibly wonderful. We've seen the fall foreshadowed and fulfilled. Now look at the rise foreshadowed. Remember it in verse 28? As Jesus foreshadowed our weakness, he also foreshadowed his strength. You will all fall away, verse 27, but then verse 28. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. It's wonderful. Now the hope of resurrection that Jesus foreshadows here for us in verse 28 is, is focused, you notice, it's not so much on the hope of rescue from death, as good as that is, but the hope of rescue from failure. The answer to Peter's fall is Jesus' rise. Uh, one of the more famous passages in the, in the New Testament on, on our hope of resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15. And if you read through that chapter, what we have revealed to us here is that the resurrection means that those who come to Jesus in faith can be restored from faith. That they, they need not be trapped in their sin. And I reckon unless you know and can see from the Bible just how holy God is and how sinful we are, we won't grasp how terrible it is to be stuck in our sin and our failure. But just how wonderful it is to be sure that because Jesus rose, we can start again. In our culture, our failures are more like, uh, you know, I wonder if you've ever seen one of these, you know, those etch-a-sketch, doodle-pro type things where you'd write on it and then you'd sort of wipe it clean at the bottom. But if you've had them for a while, after a while, the dents and the, the marks, they don't go and they're there still. And that's the way failure works in our world. Uh, people still know about our failures. It, it remains with us, it follows us, but not so with Jesus. I mean, did you hear the words of the psalm that we read this morning? If you, Lord, could keep a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. That's the burning heart of our gospel. You will fall, says Jesus, but I have risen. And look at how that changes things for Peter. Have a look at the rise fulfilled. Uh, uh, I, I want to take you, and you don't have it in front of you there, but let me read it for you. The, uh, jump forward, if you like, a spoiler to uh, Mark 16, the end of Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel covers Jesus' resurrection actually in just a few verses, but they contain the most wonderful answer to Peter's failure. Listen again to verse 27 and 28 of Mark 14 that we've been zooming in on. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Then in chapter 16, after Jesus' death and after his burial in the tomb, we're told in chapter 16 that the women go to the tomb and they find the huge stone that had been blocking the front of the tomb has been rolled away and they go in and inside there's an angel sitting inside. And, and this is what they're told in Mark 16 verse 6. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who, who was crucified, but he has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. I mean, it's wonderful news, but listen carefully to the next verse in Mark 16, verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. Remember those words from Mark 14? There you will see him just as he told you. I mean, what a wonderful and gracious detail we have recorded for us here. I, I find this, this verse uh, incredibly moving. 
having died to pay fully for our sins and having risen from death to prove that those sins are truly paid for, Jesus wants the disciples, but most particularly he wants Peter to know that that forgiveness includes him. It's an invitation to Peter to stop running from his failure. Can you imagine the relief Peter would have felt as the women uh, shared this word with him? And as we finish, I couldn't resist uh, showing you the next scene in this restoration. It's actually in one of the other Gospels, uh, John 21. Uh, you see, it records for us what Peter did after his failure. He, he went back to what he knew. He went back to fishing. And he's there with the other disciples uh, in Galilee, and, and they're fishing and they catch nothing. And in John 21, we're told as dawn comes, they see a man on the shore who calls out to them with, with great warmth. He says, children, have you caught anything? I mean, how annoying is that for fishermen to have someone asking that question when you haven't caught anything? Uh, and he tells them to throw their nets on the other side, and they do. It's the last thing they want is advice from this backseat driver, but they, they heed it. And as they do, John realises that the person standing on the shore is Jesus. And he says to Peter, it's the Lord. Uh, Peter grabs his coat. He's in the boat out in the water and he jumps into the water and he waves to the shore where Jesus is waiting for him, warming his hands by the fire. And don't miss what Jesus is doing. He's reconstructing the failure scene. Last time Peter stood around a fire, he denied that he even knew Jesus three times. And now Jesus, replaying that scene, invites Peter to eat with him. And as the meal finishes, Jesus draws Peter aside and they go for a walk along the beach. And, and if, if you read through Mark, uh, John 21, you'll, you'll see there Jesus going about restoring Peter. He says this in verse 15 of John 21. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you, you know that I love you. I mean, it's a fascinating conversation between the two of them. Uh, Simon, do you love me more than these? And he's talking about the other disciples. Because you remember what Peter had said in Mark 14? You know, they'll all, they'll all reject you. They'll all walk away from you, but not me. I'd, I'd go, I'd die for you. Jesus says to Peter, do you really love me more than them? Because you didn't. Three times you didn't. And as Peter answers, now he won't touch the comparison that he was all about back in Mark 14. All the bluster, all the self-confidence is gone. He's learnt the foolishness of that and he simply says, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus asks again and he gets the same answer. He's pushing at what allegiance actually looks like. Would you, would you call it love, Peter, what, what you did? Is that what you would describe what was happening that night? I mean, it's quite searching, isn't it, by Jesus? Jesus asks again a third time. He's redoing the three denials. And as Peter peels back, as he peels back the scab of Peter's failure that night, all that's left is grief. You know I love you. This is how God restores us from failure. When he restores us, he doesn't pretend it's all okay, that we haven't sinned. God does not excuse sin. That's our trick. When we fail, we say we couldn't help it, or it doesn't matter, or I did it for these reasons. But all of that is rubbish. We are not to make excuses before God. He has no interest in our excuses. He never excuses sin, but he does forgive it. Peter comes face to face with his failure, and this is the way God deals with sin, by calling it what it is, by never pretending. And it is through this process that Peter is restored.
forgiven and reinstated to the very purpose that God gave him. That's what I want to leave you with. That's where the gospel leads. I wonder if you consider the echo in Mark 14 and 16. I will rise and go ahead of you to Galilee, said Jesus. Why Galilee? Remember Peter? This is returning to where his life first changed. Right at the start of Mark's gospel, Mark 1, verse 16 to 18, that's where Peter was called to go fish for people. Now he's recommissioned to that cause. But why Galilee is not just a personal question, it's also global. Galilee was to be the place where the launching point for this gospel of way back from failure to reach, not just Peter, but the nations. You remember these famous words that we read virtually every Christmas from Isaiah? Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And as we gather this morning, we know that the risen Lord Jesus continues to go ahead of us, just as he said, turning around broken and failed lives like mine and like yours. And we too have been restored to share that story that there is a way back from failure. We live in a world where big failure means the end, where there's no way back. Our society is geared up to say you have one chance, don't blow it. But for the Christian, the answer to failure, after seeing it honestly, is grace. Failure with God need not be final. It may feel like it. And I take it that that is the work of Satan, saying to us when we sin, when we deny our Lord, you cannot come back from this. God is done with you. It is Satan's most terrible work, first to tempt us into denying Jesus and then to accuse us and to keep us from going back to Jesus. But with God, the God who gave his son for us, the God who raised him from the dead, there is always a new page to be written, a fresh start. He is the God of second chances. I've been a Christian for closing in on 33 years, and let me tell you, I am a spiritual cat. I have nine times, 99 times, 9,000 times when God has had to say to me, let's start again. God says, I will remember your sin no more. He says, in the end, your failure need not be final. It may be overwhelmed by my grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. And we thank you that here we have an answer to failure, an answer that is sure and true that he has died and that he has risen and that he goes ahead of us. We thank you for Jesus. Amen.